you would take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. If you're following the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 1007. This is where we're going to start this morning. This is not going to be where we stay. I will try to give you page numbers for the uh, places we'll turn to as we go along for this blue Bible in front of you. In case the Bible's not too familiar to you or you just need a little bit of help, I'll try to do that. As we go along, because we are in the begin, in the middle of a series, a topical series on the church, the gospel and the church. This is week number four, week five, Lord willing, we'll conclude this series. Uh, and this morning, we're giving our attention to what the Bible in its breadth, although we'll focus mostly in the New Testament, has to say about our life together in the gospel. So that's going to be our focus this morning as we continue this series looking at the gospel and the church. Assume for a moment that this is the church you will die in. I don't mean physically die in the church, but I just mean as part of this church. Ten years from now, 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now. Your life ends as a member of this church. And if it's not here, pick a church. Maybe the church you're a part of, that you're visiting from. And any gospel preaching church, hopefully, that's been walking alongside you as a Christian. So that's a lot of life you're going to be spending here around these people. What is the best thing our church could do for you over that period of time? What's the best thing our church or any church could do for you over the course of your life? What do you think? Well, as we turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, the Bible gives us an answer. This is not the only answer it gives, but this is one of the answers it gives. And it's going to be where we start. Hebrews 10, 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author is writing to Christians in the church. He tells them to have a Christ-like way of life, love and good works, directed toward each other, one another, together, in view of Jesus' return as the day draws near. The Bible says in many places that the best thing our church can do for us is to help us love Jesus until we're with Jesus. This is our loving responsibility for each other. So how do we do that? Well, that's going to be the subject of my sermon this morning. We help each other love Jesus until we're with Jesus through discipleship and discipline. Now, now discipline is really just a subset of discipleship. It's one of the many ways that we love one another. But for this morning, for reasons I'm sure you might either guess or will see more clearly, given, given how sensitive of a subject it can be and how little good teaching maybe there's been about it over the course of our lives, certainly was the case for me, I've decided to give it its own space. So we're going to look at two points, discipleship and discipline. Point number one being this. Discipleship 
is our gospel responsibility to love Jesus together until we're with Jesus forever. And then secondly, discipline is our gospel response when any of us are not loving Jesus. So let's start with discipleship. Discipleship, our gospel responsibility to love Jesus until we're with Jesus forever. If you've read the Gospels, you're familiar with this word disciple. A Christian is a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? It is a person who has responded to the gospel message that tells them that they are a sinner in need of forgiveness from God. And upon learning of their sin and guilt before God's holy law, they turn from sin in repentance and trust in Christ's death on the cross as a substitute for them that clears them from all guilt and shame and gives them a new righteous standing before God through Christ. A disciple is a person who has repented and believed in Christ as their Savior. And a disciple is a person who follows Jesus Christ as their Lord. Christ's first commandment to his followers is to be baptized, as we thought about a few weeks ago. And after baptism, publicly displaying our allegiance to Christ and our desire to follow him, our discipleship continues throughout each day, throughout each year, throughout each decade, in loving obedience to Jesus. As Jesus himself says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jesus' disciples love each other. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is a disciple. Now, I would guess that not everyone here is a disciple of Christ right now. If that's true of you, I wonder why you will not believe in Christ's death for you to be forgiven. Do you think of yourself as too good to need his death? Or too bad to benefit from his grace? Perhaps you feel no need to have a king over you. You'd rather be your own master. Oh, but friend, who will save you from death? And what answer will you give to the God who offered you life in following his son, but you chose your own path instead? Follow Christ. Believe in him. Turn from your sin today. Receive Christ's free and abundant grace offered through the blood of Jesus to cover your sin and receive his life that rescues you from your death. If you are a Christian, because you are a disciple of Jesus, your life now has a very specific direction. It is to be shaped 
by the instructions of Jesus, your Lord, led by the spirit of Jesus in you, marked by the ways of Jesus on your life, all out of love for Jesus from your heart. Jesus, as we were reminded in the call to worship from Ephesians 2, had his body broken on the cross to make us his body. A people built on him that grows up into him. So our lives are now focused and oriented on the confession of the truth that Christ is our Savior, our Lord, and our foundation. So you see how our previous sermon topics in this series kind of lead us into this one. The verbal confession of Christ as Savior and Son of God indicates that a disciple has been made because the grace of God has revealed Christ to them and they believed. The ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper publicly demonstrate a person's desire and decision to follow Jesus. And their place within the church body, submitting to the leadership and accountable at the end of the day to the whole congregation, assures them as a disciple that they are a disciple and affirms to others their place among Christ's disciples in the church. Now, I think that any of Christian present this morning would agree that you and I have a responsibility to follow Jesus. But what I think often gets missed is how Jesus intends for us to do that, not just as 137 different individual Christians on our own individual path, but as a corporate whole, as a church. You see, when we look at the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't really conceive of or present our discipleship to Jesus in strictly individual terms but almost always within the arena of the church's life. So all those letters written to all those churches in the New Testament, yes, they, command, they contain commands and encouragements that have to do with your individual discipleship to Jesus. But many of them are impossible if you aren't living with other Christians in a committed way. The clearest illustration of this is all the one another passages. I'm going to blaze through these. But listen to all the ways we're called to be disciples with one another. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Admonish one another. Care for one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another. Look to the interests of one another. Bear with one another. Teach one another. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. And that's not all there are. How do we do that if we don't have one another? Discipleship to Jesus must include other Christians. We cannot do this on our own. And Jesus Knowing that gives us the church. He gives us our one another. Listen to what Jesus says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. 
and hear him as he speaks, telling each of us how much we need each other to follow him. To the church, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Who teaches you the gospel? The church authorized by Jesus. Who affirms your discipleship to Jesus through baptism? The church. Who instructs and teaches you what Jesus says and helps you see and know how to live in Jesus' way? The church. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, by the church, I don't mean some inorganic institution. I mean a people called to be gathered in Jesus' name. Jesus gave the church responsibility and authority in your life. And her chief responsibility is to tell you how to live according to the gospel, affirm you when you are living according to the gospel, and love you by continuing to help you live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We looked in our first week at Matthew 16, where Jesus says, He gives the church the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose what is bound in heaven. We saw there how Jesus intends the church to be a kind of mirror reflection of what is true in heaven. So that those who are part of the local church that believes the gospel will also expect that this will be the people we meet in our heavenly community. Now we'll think about the church's authority to loose in our next point, but... Making disciples is how the church binds. Christ authorizes the church to positively affirm those who hold the confession of Christ and follow Christ in obedience. So, your position and mine, inside or outside the church... On the basis of your belief in Jesus and repentant way of life? Well, that is God's way of denying or affirming that you are in his kingdom. That's a loving thing for God to do for you. So that if you are outside, you will clearly see your need to follow Jesus and come into his people. And if you are already inside... You will be able to see and identify the place from which you can get the help you need to remain in his kingdom. So, if our gospel responsibility is for each other's discipleship, how do we exercise this responsibility? Well, the simple answer is we love Jesus together. We love Jesus together. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll tell you the page number when I'm there. Page 977. If you wanted a passage that you would like to say, man, I... I'd like to give more thought to this discipleship in the church subject. If you wanted one passage to go back and look at this week, let me point out Ephesians 4, 1 through verse 16. 
be a great place to dedicate some time. Discipleship to Jesus has life with Jesus as the main goal. We are not trying to replicate ourselves in discipleship. But instead we are seeking to see replicas of Christ made in us. There's a big difference. This is the goal when we disciple each other as Ephesians encourages us to do. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, there we are expressing our love in discipleship to one another. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we encourage each other to follow Jesus, who is alone the way, the truth, and the life, we help each other love Jesus instead of versions of our way or our truth or our preferences on what life should be like, which all won't be helpful. No matter how earnest we might be in it, our discipleship with others is misdirected if it doesn't direct all of us to Jesus. And when we're living with Jesus, this means we are automatically invested in Jesus' people. Just as you cannot separate a head from the body, you cannot separate Christ from his people. And this investment that we make is an investment that seeks each other's spiritual good. Now that is counter to the consumer mentality of our culture. And and even popular approaches, I'm sad to say, to the church that we see all around us. Jesus wants us showing up to the family of God on Sunday and throughout the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, through Saturday, asking, how can I give myself to do good for you? After all, that's what Jesus did when he came to earth. And that's how our life witnesses to him. It's the kind of older with the younger presence that Anne read for us from Titus 2. Doing each other good, seeking each other out, pulling people along, encouraging along in the faith. One of my main functions as one of the pastors of this church is to help you follow Jesus together. Just like Ephesians 4 says, Jesus gives the church elders not to do all the church ministry, but to equip all the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Not so that I can be more faithful and holy but so that we can all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So your pastors teach you Christ's word so that you can teach each other. I encourage you with Christ, and you can then encourage each other with Christ. 
The elders remind you of the gospel, and you then turn back to me and to everyone else, and you remind me and each other of the gospel. Maybe you're hearing this and are agreeing, but you just don't know where to begin in doing this. Well, let me encourage each of us to have at least one person, one person that you are intentionally giving time to, to help them love Jesus and follow him. One person in our church. Parents, don't overestimate that if you have children, those one people live under your roof. The best place to start in that, if you're still wondering, well, okay, that sounds good. One person, I got somebody. What do I do? Well, the best place to start in that is to study the Bible with somebody else. Simply talk about, if you are not a student of the Word, if you've never been to seminary, if you've never studied theology in depth, that's okay. Open the Bible, God speaks. His Spirit helps us understand His Word. Do not be discouraged from exercising your responsibility to others and doing them spiritual good just because you don't know everything there is to know about Jesus. None of us do. The best place to start is with the Bible open and simply talking about how to look to Christ and follow Him in obedience to what His Word says. And don't wait for somebody else to give that to you. Go and make disciples. This discipleship responsibility is something not just to understand is a good obligation in our life that Jesus has commanded us to, but it's something to embrace. It's an opportunity. Why? Because when we love Jesus together, it helps us until we are with Christ forever. Can you be a Christian and get to heaven without being meaningfully committed to a church? I suppose it's possible. Although the New Testament never really gives such a category. But why would you want to try that? It's like being offered a spot on an ocean liner to get across the Pacific, but you choose to try to go it on a pool raft. Remember, no one else in the world outside of Christ's people are interested in helping you focus your life around Jesus. But the church will gladly step up and take that responsibility for you when you join your life to ours. As we walk together, we encourage each other to look ahead, like we sang, to look to Jesus. Deliver us, Lord, now and come and set up your reign. We encourage each other to do that. We urge each other to be pure and blameless in our life now so that we will be pure and blameless when our Savior appears. We encourage each other to live boldly and unashamedly for Jesus during the week so that Jesus will not be ashamed of us when he comes back. We spur each other on to use and invest everything Jesus has given us for his glory so that when Jesus appears, we will receive the reward of a life stewarded for Christ. That's my first point then. Discipleship is both a responsibility and an opportunity to love Jesus together until we're with him forever. But as we know, we haven't reached heaven yet. And sometimes 
our sin becomes an obstacle to our discipleship. So let's move on to point number two. To think about our response to each other when that happens. Number two, discipline. Our gospel response when one of us is not loving Jesus. Now, oftentimes when we say church discipline, we use it as kind of a catch-all, but specifically to refer to the act of removing a person from membership in a church and from participation at the Lord's Supper because of their unrepentant sin. But that is only one aspect of church discipline, and there are others. So if you have ever been lovingly confronted by another Christian brother or sister about something you said that may have hurt them, you've been disciplined. Even if you immediately ask for their forgiveness. If God has ever brought a situation or a person to you that led to your humbling, you've experienced discipline. God disciplines us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and it's going to be on page 1008. The author, starting in verse 3, teaches us about how God disciplines us. He says, Hebrews 12, 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author here is encouraging Christians experiencing hostility for their faith to see God's purposes in having them undergo this trial, even though they're being tempted in some way to sin. In verse 5, he describes God's actions towards them as discipline. My son... Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Then, in verse 6, we're told that God's occasional reproof or discipline or chastising is a way he loves us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then in the following verses, we find out why God does this and why it is loving. Because in addressing our sin, God aims to guard our future with him by removing sin in us now. So, comparing God's loving discipline to that of earthly fathers, he writes in verse 10 and 11, For they, that is the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But the author doesn't stop with God's discipline of us. He then says, we're to be involved in this sin-correcting, holiness-pursuing life together. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping knees and strengthen your weak, drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it 
that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no brood of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Discipline is part of our discipleship responsibility to each other. We are always engaged in the fight against sin. And when that happens, and because that is, sometimes we get tired of fighting. Sometimes we will pull our idols close and we will love things more than Jesus. If discipleship is how we help each other love Jesus, then discipline is the way we bring loving correction when we see one of our brothers and sisters not loving Jesus. We have a loving obligation to steer each other toward Christ and away from sin. Now, we might feel a lot of trepidation about this, and understandably. Understandably for a host of reasons. One, culturally. The world does not consider correction loving, but hateful. And more and more. In your own personal history with the church, you might have seen discipline done poorly or unlovingly. And because of that, you're not confident this can be done well. Or maybe you just wonder for yourself, who am I to correct someone else for the sin I see in their life when I know there's sin in my own heart? Well, thankfully, Scripture guides us in how to go about this God's way. We can trust his purpose and his word to direct us in the process of discipline. And to see his clear direction, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. Page number 823. Now, if you've ever heard church discipline talked about, and from Matthew 18, you've probably started at verse 15, the process that Jesus lays out. But the conversation actually starts earlier than that. So go back to the beginning of the chapter. I'm just going to kind of help you walk through this. I'm not going to read it. But at the beginning, the disciples of Jesus are arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus instructs them that the way of the kingdom is the way of humility. Then Jesus, having talked about little children and how his disciples are to be like them, he talks about his care for little children. And by that, he means his people. Jesus pivots into a conversation about sin. How bad it is to lead one of his children into sin. Verse 5 and 6. How vigilant we must be in the fight against temptation to sin. Verse 7 through 9. And how God will pursue one of his children in love when they wander into sin like lost sheep. Verse 10 to 13. And God does all this because he doesn't want any of his children to perish. Verse 14. So all of that is connected to what Jesus then lays out in verse 15 to 18. How do we pursue humility like children? How do we remain vigilant in fighting sin? 
How do we mimic the Lord in lovingly pursuing the lost sheep? Well, Jesus says in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Who knew that that last phrase, so often repeated, was in the context of church discipline? Jesus outlines the process for loving church discipline here. When a professing Christian wanders into sin and that sin affects you, Jesus calls you to go and tell them that. Now, hopefully, that is all that is needed. If someone does that for you, that's all that's needed for you to be brought to correction and for you to humbly acknowledge any sin you've committed. But if not, if you do this for another, we do this for each other, and the person we've approached continues and we're concerned that they're in danger if they continue down the path of their sin, then we're to bring two or three other people who have seen the same thing that we have seen. This both, you see, amplifies the concern if it's legitimate, but it also protects us from being a church that brings vindictive charges of sin against each other without any real basis. In order for discipline like this to be rightly pursued, there needs to be a shared agreement among a few that a person truly is wandering and that there is visible evidence to support that claim. Because of this, in church discipline, the sin that is confronted should be of a public and serious nature. It is very hard to prove that a person is greedy, though that may be true. But it is evident and visible when a person has abandoned their spouse or when they have started promoting a false gospel on social media. If the person confronted with their sin still doesn't listen and acknowledge what they've done is wrong, then Jesus says the whole church needs to know about what's happening. Because as we learned last week, the authority is all in the church's hands. Up until this point, only a few people are to know. Remember, we always want to be careful to guard each other's reputations. If we pursue a wandering sheep, we pray and hope that they soon out, turn out to be a restored sheep without anyone else ever knowing they were straying to begin with. There's no need to involve more people unless there is really nothing else you can do to warn and correct the person who is straying. But once the church is brought in, then the church needs to speak and warn the person. At this point, Jesus, I think, is assuming that the church as a whole is in agreement that this is a matter of unrepentant sin. It could be because of evident unbelief, where the person is claiming to be a Christian but abandoning the gospel confession laid out in Matthew 16. Or it could be because of their actions, like the man in 1 Corinthians 5, who's engaged in known public sexual immorality. 
Now, should the person confronted still remain in their sin? Then Jesus tells the church to use the keys. The same keys he authorizes in Matthew 16, 19. That's this conversation about binding and loosing. On the basis of a person's unrepentant sin, either in unbelief or an unrepentant action, the church has the authority from Jesus and the responsibility given to it by Jesus to declare that this individual's life does not match that of a citizen of heaven. They are a lost sheep that can no longer claim to be part of the fold of Christ. According to Jesus, the church is to make it clear in their interactions with the individual that that person should no longer consider themselves part of Christ's church, but instead a member of the world. Should that seem like an enormous task that you are not sure how you would navigate? Look at verse 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus does not leave us alone in this. Where we need help to be wise and patient and discerning, he says, ask me, I'll give it to you. When we need courage to be obedient, he says, I'll give you that. And even more, he tells the church, he will be with us in this. Jesus understands what he is calling us to. And he knows it is hard for us to do. But he doesn't say, don't do it. He says, trust me. And I will guide you. The problems and pains caused by wrongful church discipline happen because the church does not follow Jesus in his design. Churches get torn apart because non-Christians are carelessly invited into membership or sin gets swept under the rug. Or a person suffers because discipline is used to push a leader's agenda Instead of to help a person pursue holiness. Too many times. Jesus' way for restoration has been twisted by human plans for retribution. And God hates it. Remember, the gospel response of discipline happens when we see a sheep getting lost. And we go after them in love to encourage them to come back home. And even if we have to go all the way through the process to the point of excommunication or excommunioning them or inviting them, disinviting them from uninviting them from participating in the Lord's Supper because they're out of fellowship with us due to their sin. Even if that needs to happen, we pray that that will not be the end of the matter. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. Page 954. 
Here, Paul is telling the church in Corinth to exercise church discipline by removing a man engaged in unrepentant sin. You don't have time for me to read it all. You might want to go back and see it for yourself. But in verse 4, it kind of comes to a point. Paul says, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice, the aim of discipline is the person's holiness. And the desire is that through pursuing this action, this person will one day be with them when they're with Jesus forever. That their soul will be saved. Church, discipline aims at restoration. Notice also in this passage that church discipline is engagement in spiritual realities. We are binding and loosing what is in heaven. We are delivering people over to a kingdom ruled by an invisible prince of darkness. The world will oppose this process simply because they do not have the eyes to see the gravity of what is eternally at stake. But we do. And through this process, Jesus will work even to open the eyes of those who are blind. And when someone that we discipline does repent... We're to be ready and eager to welcome them back. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, it seems that this man who was disciplined in 1 Corinthians does finally realize the gravity of his sin and responds in repentance. Jesus uses church discipline to, repent, to protect people from eternal ruin. Praise God! <laughs> Paul says to the church there in 2 Corinthians 2, you were obedient to Jesus' design and it worked. So now do what Jesus would do. Bring the lost sheep back in. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. God loves us through discipline and discipline is a way we love God and each other. We love Christ and we honor him by obeying his process. We love Christ's church by guarding her purity, the purity Christ died to give us. We love the wandering sheep by pursuing them in correction and praying for their repentance and restoration. Discipline is a gospel response to any of us when we're not loving Jesus. But how far does this responsibility go? Well, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 5, verse 9. Page 954. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our responsibility to exercise discipline only extends to those among us who are claiming to be brothers and sisters. Part of Christ's body but engaged in unrepentant sin. That means that if someone joins us, but then later says, I don't believe this anymore. 
I don't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, while tragic and sad, we would remove them from membership, but not as an act of discipline. Our gospel responsibility is to those claiming to be living as followers of Jesus and who have already engaged that life of discipleship with us when they joined us. So how do we know who that is? Well, for us, it's through church membership. Church membership is how we know a person says they want to take responsibility in the discipleship of this local church and have this church take responsibility for their discipleship. So when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are meant to look around the table and see who is at the table and know that these are the people who have expressed a desire to have this church or some other church that you're visiting from where you've done the same. That body, that specific people are the people, these people at the table are looking to for help in following Jesus. At the table, we notice those who aren't there, either because they were once here and have died and gone to be with the Lord, or have moved away to pull up their chair at another church table. Or we notice those who have said they want to be a part of Christ's body with us, but they're not following Jesus with us. Like any loving family, those are the people Jesus tells us to pursue until their seat is restored at the table. Or we lovingly need to tell them they can only return when they return to following Christ in repentance and faith. I pray the Lord helps us understand his purposes and designs he has in all of this. If this isn't his way, then we shouldn't pursue it. But if it is, we must follow him as his disciples. Go back to Matthew 18 later this week, the whole chapter, and see again how much God cares about making sure you are kept safe in his fold and not getting lost to your own sin or picked off by Satan's evil schemes. He cares so much that he doesn't leave you or me to decide on ourselves what following Jesus means because we'd make a wreck of that. But he gives his word, his spirit, and his church to help us all. He doesn't leave you isolated as one person in a dark world to grope in weakness and confusion. But he gives a whole family that links arms with you and walks the path behind Jesus together. Knowing how God's love and protection comes to us through the church's discipleship. We can be people who welcome discipleship and discipline in our life. It is all evidence of God's love. So as we come to the end, we have focused on a lot on our responsibility to pursue discipleship and discipline with each other. I want to finish by reminding us of the opportunity for us in this as a way to encourage us. And that opportunity is a life of love here that when finished, continues on forever with Jesus. Our love for each other today is the same type of life we'll be living in 10,000 years. Only it'll be sweeter because the sin we lovingly corrected in each other will be gone. And the Savior we yearn to be with together and we're striving to help each other follow all the days on this earth will be with us face to face.
you and I, Christian, want to live to see that day. I know many of us will not finish our earthly lives as members of this church. Although, if you're thinking about it, let me encourage you to. For as long as we have together, let's live preparing to pass each other off from one love in this church to the love of heaven's reality, the next. From our discipleship and our discipline handed off into the eternal comfort of Jesus Christ. What motivation to be intentional and purposeful in our discipleship together. If you're to help me avoid the snares of the devil, I need to tell you where I'm susceptible to stumbling. If I am to encourage your faint heart, you can help me by opening up to me when you're doubtful. We are not alone. We are brothers and sisters armed with weapons of truth to strike down the opponents of deception and temptation that rise against us. And we have Jesus with us, promising us that his purposes to bring his church home will come to pass. Warnell Road Baptist Church, may God help us to walk this path together all the way to the end. I love how the preacher Charles Spurgeon captured this as he encouraged his own church in a life of discipleship. Listen to this, what he says to us even through the centuries. Listen and hear both the responsibility and the opportunity we have in helping each other love Jesus until we're with Jesus forever. I am engaged in personally conducted tours to heaven. It is my business, as best I can, to kill dragons and cut off giants' heads and lead on the timid and trembling. I am often afraid of losing some of the weaklings. I have the heart ache for them. But by God's grace and your kind and generous help in looking after one another, I hope we shall all travel safely to the river's edge. Oh, how many have I had to part with there. I have stood on the brink and I have heard them singing in the midst of the stream. And I have almost seen the shining ones lead them up the hill and through the gates into the celestial city. That's where we're going. We follow Jesus there. And he gives us each other to make sure we get home. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you call us and you say, follow me. Lord, we want to follow you. Show us the way. Show us by your word. Show us by your spirit. Show us through each other. Show us even in this time. Point us to how we can help each other follow Jesus better, more closely. Lord, protect us. Protect anyone on the verge of danger. Protect them through the witness of this church through the love shown to them by others in this church. Lord, get us home. We want to get home. We want to be with you. 
Use us. Use us to bring us home to you. In Jesus' name, amen.